Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. Today's special guest is Dr. Jordan J. Baller. He acted as the general editor of Lexham Press's series, Abraham Kuyper, Collected Works in Public Theology. In particular, today we're talking about the volume on business and economics. One particular thing that I was grateful from our conversation to get a better idea of is not only was Abraham Kuyper prolific in his content, what I love and am most edified by from Mr. Kuyper is the sort of assumption of responsibility and the level of skin in the game that he had towards his community. He was involved in local politics. He was involved in all areas of life. He is someone to imitate in how to essentially mature as a Christian and what it means to take responsibility for those around you. And so I highly recommend not only this episode, but going to find his works. You can find the work we're talking about today at Lexham Press. And we also talk about a few biographies that we really recommend. From the canon shelf, something that came to mind as we worked our way through this was Douglas Wilson's Rules for Reformers. Along the same lines as the note of this episode is what it takes to sort of with your eyes open, interact with the world, especially the local world that you find yourself in? What are ways that you can be proactive, ways that when you engage, it's a potent outworking of your faith in your local community? I highly recommend it from Pastor Wilson. You can find it at canonpress.com, or of course, you can listen to it on the Canon app. Now, without further ado, meet Dr. Jordan J. Baller. Now welcoming on special guest, Dr. Jordan J. Baller. His byline's all over the place, it turns out. Dr. Baller, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Where, where are you at right now? Jake, I'm a, I'm a research fellow at the Acton Institute, uh, where I'm continuing work on this Kuiper series that we're going to talk a little bit about today. And then I'm also a research fellow at the First Liberty Institute. Okay. And that's relevant. We're going to get to that. I want to jump right in. You, you mentioned it. I had you on today because I have in my hand from Lexham Press, Abraham Kuyper's Collected Works in Public Theology, and this particular volume is on business and economics, and you had a part in that. Can you tell us a little bit about the series? Yeah, so the series is uh, 12 physical volumes, although there's a couple, there's a caveat in there about basically half the series are, are uh are three volume sets. So there's two trilogies that are kind of the backbone of this 12 volume series. Okay. The idea was to, to really bring more of Kuiper's original writings into English. I mean, it's been a hundred years now since his death, he passed away in 1920. So last year was the centennial of his passing. And over the last 10 years or so, there was a, a group that in good Kuiperian fashion kind of organically developed and got together and started talking about the possibility of translating some of his works into English that had not been previously available. And the project kind of grew and grew until it formed this kind of more coherent 12-volume series. So that I, I mentioned those two trilogies. The, the first is actually the, the, the original set that we were going to work on in terms of translation. And that was his three volumes on Common Grace. Okay. And then the second trilogy was written uh, a little bit later in his life, and it's it's called Pro Rega, and it's about living basically before the king or for for Christ the king. And so it's his reflections on discipleship in a comprehensive sense in all of society. So those two sets are, are, are half the series. And then we've got essentially 
thematic volumes for the other six that that try to represent and bring together from across his broad corpus of writings things that demonstrate his his interest and his thinking on a variety of areas. So we've got a volume on the church, for example. He was very you know influential in in helping bring out a, a new church denominations in the Netherlands. We've got his writings on education. Among the many things he did was found a, a university. This present volume on business and economics is another thematic volume. We've got a volume on his political thinking, which is more coherent. That's called Our Program, which was his essentially primer, his commentary on the anti-revolutionary party's uh, political platform in 1879 and 1880. After he was prime minister, he rose to, to be prime minister of the Netherlands. Uh, he took a trip uh, around the Mediterranean Sea, and we've extracted some of the chapters from those two volumes and, and put out a volume of his, his collected writings on Islam. And then the final volume in the wow. series, which is uh, forthcoming, will be on charity and, and justice. Is a collection of of writings on those kind of two broad themes. So I think between all of those things, I've got up to twelve. But that's basically the <laughs> thumbnail sketch of this very uh, you know ambitious and robust uh, set of writings. So that's the work. Now, can you? We'll start right off with just who is or who was Abraham Kuyper. Yeah, so his dates are, are 1837 to 1920. As I mentioned, he passed away a century ago last year. And, you know, it, whenever you hear Kuiper introduced, you'll hear a string of descriptors that come afterwards, usually like uh, pastor, academic, theologian, uh, politician. Sometimes he's called a statesman, you know, because that's a good word for capturing, you know, in a way, all, everything that he did in, in political life. He was also an educator, as we mentioned. He, he helped form uh, and begin the Free University of Amsterdam, the Free Reformed University of Amsterdam, now known as the Free University of Amsterdam. He was a journalist. He was an editor of two different newspapers for decades. You know, when the, when the Free University was celebrating his centennial last year, they, used, they opened up with the, the, the description of him as a social entrepreneur. And in many ways, that's, that's an apt description for Kuiper. I mean, he was a kind of a, a theorist. Of of social institutions, but also a practitioner and a founder of many. So he he um, he was a builder of many institutions of various kinds and a defender of the rights of people to form associations and build institutions according to their own the dictates of their conscience and their own worldview perspectives. You could say. I recently had Dr. Eglinton on, who wrote a oh, critical yeah. biography of Bavink. With that, I was really surprised and impressed with. Bavink's breadth of work mm -hmm. for whatever reason i have a prejudice in my mind i guess of like the systematic guys having a sort of uh by trade a very narrow sort of scope of interest because it's not very easy to do systematics you know you kind of have to really dive deep but i was proven wrong would you say i mean it's very clear that kuiper is the generalist as well right yeah it's very interesting to, to think about the relationship between these two um these two colleagues and friends really i mean Kuiper's a little bit older, uh, Bavink's a little bit younger. Uh, in terms of the, the popular uh, theological understanding of these two figures, especially, say, in North America, I think you're right that, that Bavink tends to, to get categorized as kind of the systematic dogmatic thinker, you know, in no small part because his reformed dogmatics have come out into English in the last 20 years, sure. and those are so valuable and, and just, you know, such a rich resource. So that's, you know, in, in a way how Bavink's name has been made, at least in more recent decades in the United States. Whereas Kuiper did do systematic theology and did do kind of um, uh, constructive theology in an orderly fashion, you could say. 
but he was much more in terms of his disposition, a kind of what, what Richard Mao has called a theologian on the run. He was doing his theology on the run. He was, as I said, <laughs> you know, kind of this entrepreneur where he was setting up all these different institutions and he was thinking very deeply about all of them. And then out of his thinking, he was writing very deeply and, and thoughtfully about all these things. So, you know, Kuiper in that sense is, is definitely a generalist and broad. But that's not to say, I mean, this is one thing I think that's not really appreciated about Bob Inc. either is that, um, as you were just mentioning, that Bob Inc., you know, in many ways does the same kind of work as Kuiper in terms of engaging across different spheres very thoughtfully. Um, he improves upon Kuiper in many ways, corrects some of the things that Kuiper said, or in, this, in, a, in a place where Kuiper is, is doing a little bit more creative kind of open-ended speculative kind of work, Bob Inc. Is, is bringing it much more down to earth and being much more careful and detailed and and setting that you know these kinds of formulations much more carefully. So, but you know, Bob Inc. was a politician as well. Um, he was chairman of the anti-revolutionary party after Kuiper was. He served in 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 the Dutch Parliament as well. So, I think in that sense, the breadth of Bob Inc.'s work is is often underappreciated. At the same time, that Kuiper's seriousness is also underappreciated, right? Like you tend to think of Kuiper as a little bit more of a dilettante, perhaps, or yeah. somebody who is writing superficially across all these different areas but actually when you look when you sit down and that's one of the things that has really come home to me in working on this series over the last 10 years is that Kuiper was a genius maybe a different kind of genius than Bob Inc's genius but he thought and worked and wrote very deeply across a wide variety of genre and topics and um, even where he's wrong or even where you disagree with him there's something worthwhile to engaging his thought sure and and in even reading that biography I was very surprised to find out, as you mentioned, that there was a relationship to some degree there. Does does Kuiper talk about that anywhere in, in his works or or at least mention in, or engaging with him? You mean between Kuiper and Bob Inc.? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's correspondence between the two, um, you know, and and James in his his biography goes into more detail about this, this relationship. Um, I do think to some degree, Bob Inc. has been underappreciated in the sense that he's He's been always listed as kind of and not not quite an afterthought, but in second place, right? Like, right. It's always Kuiper and Bob Inc. And part of that's just <laughs> that Kuiper was a little bit older. You know, James has done work on Kuiper and his his view of kind of the broad history of theology, and and um, I heard him give a, pay, a a brilliant paper. I don't know if he's published it yet, but it, it's probably if it's not out, it's forthcoming on the relationship between Kuiper's view, say, of, of dogmatic history, and and he's got this kind of model of of someone who is the discoverer of some new truth, some new dogmatic insight or something like that. And then somebody who's like the refiner of it, who follows along and takes up that insight and 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 you know puts it more carefully and and con, uh, consistently and systematically. And there's some evidence that as James puts it that Bob uh, Kuiper had this view of his relationship between himself and Bob Inc. That Kuiper, you know, had some some new insights and you could say it's this kind of comprehensive understanding of the calling of the Christian in all of life and a revaluation of the role of theology in relationship to the academic to other academic disciplines. And that Bob Inc., uh, from Kuiper's perspective, was the 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 person who's going to come along and refine and and uh and uh clarify and make systematic all of those insights. Yep. So it's a really interesting relationship. I don't know, I mean there's there are now excellent biographies of both in English, of Kuiper and Bob Inc. in English now that James's uh, work on, on Bob Inc. is available. 
and certainly, you know, no no biography of Kuiper would be worth worth anything if it didn't, you know, really get into to his relationship with Bobbink and sure. vice versa. So, sure. yeah, I mean, and you know, it, it's not that they agreed about everything by any stretch. They had disagreements on many of the key things. Actually, they were in in agreement in terms of say the things that like Kuiper is maybe a little more controversial. Say for his, his doctrine of common grace. Bob Inc. defends Common Grace as well, has an important essay articulating his understanding of Common Grace, but he doesn't have a three-volume set, you sure. know, defending Common Grace. And he's not the, the, the one who's sort of picking up the standard to fight, uh, to defend this doctrine in public uh, the same way that Kuiper is. So, you know, there's some, disagree- there's some agreements there substantially, but differences in, say, emphasis or in terms of their understanding of their calling as well. Sure. And, and I imagine, like I said, I feel like as you were saying earlier, with the last 20 years in Bob Inc.'s rise to notoriety, you know, that will be probably explored more and more. I, it, gen, to my general night, night, whether it's my naivete or general ignorance, I wouldn't have, ass- I knew them both and I don't know that I knew that they were uh, so closely tied. So now with both of them being so interactive in, ter- in terms of where they were, whether it's like being the statesman or the prime minister, into politics, anti-revolutionary party, et cetera. Could you describe for us the Netherlands at that time, or at least the course of, of Kuiper's life to, a, to an American in 2021? Is this a place, there's some overlap, places, some areas where I would recognize, or is the contrast pretty stark? Yeah. So this is, you know, the Netherlands experienced the industrial revolutions relatively late. So by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, the Netherlands is starting to experience a number of the, the disjunctions and the discontinuities and the kind of um, social upheaval that had swept through the European continent earlier and earlier decades and other places. So it's, 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 it's still an era kind of a post-revolution in the sense that you've had these, this revolutionary era, especially, say, the, the French Revolution of the 1789 and, and forward. You know, it's a post-revolutionary still a kind of a revolutionary setting in the sense that so many things are being upset and overturned. And so after these kind of political revolutions, you have subsequent ripple effects of different kinds of social and economic revolutions. The Netherlands is becoming increasingly diverse. It was always a kind of a haven for plur- for religious pluralities and religious minorities, uh, at least in certain parts of the Netherlands, to be able to find toleration or at least be able to, to exist in, in relative peace, say, you know, during the, the the tumults of the 16th and 17th centuries, but now many of these minorities and and previously disenfranchised or at least marginalized communities are becoming more and more vibrant or seeking more and more of a place in the public square. So it's, there's a question of say enfranchisement and political right for a variety of people in an increasingly diverse society. And so, in that sense, I think there are, there are some resonances between Kuiper's Netherlands and you know, the much more developed and interconnected and globalized world that we see today. So, you know, Kuiper wasn't dealing with large groups of, say, Muslims in the Netherlands at the time. His, you know, the diversity that he was dealing with were, were with Jews and Roman Catholics who had, you know, the, the hierarchy had be recently been reinstated in the Netherlands and secularists, you know, which would, what we would call them today. For Kuiper, he would identify them as liberals and revolutionaries in the sense of the French Revolution. So he was dealing with you know a variety of different confessional and non-confessional kinds of groups in his own day, and it, you know if you 
multiply that exponentially, then you're dealing with the kinds of diversity that we have, say, in the United States today in terms of the existential, you know, uh, encounters that we have with people. But the dynamics in that sense, I do think are similar, that, that Kuiper is dealing with a society that is becoming, for a variety of reasons, the Napoleonic era and so on, and the imposition of these kinds of new constitutional orders and, and new social orders on the Netherlands from outside, as well as movements from inside. It's becoming a, a state in a more modern sense in this, or postmodern sense, even in the sense that, you know, there's a new identity that needs to be forged. This is part of what Kuiper's doing with attempting to reinvigorate, you know, the reformed community in the Netherlands as self-consciously Calvinistic. In that sense, yeah, there's a lot of social upheaval. You're seeing increased inequality, a lot of the dynamics, people moving from rural centers to urban centers. Wealth is increasing, you know, say on a per capita basis, even if inequality is likewise increasing. So yeah, it's 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 definitely a different world in the sense, you know, that he was dealing with trains and telegraphs as opposed to say, you know, we were dealing with Zoom and the internet and all those kinds of things. Right. But many of the dynamics are similar and many of his reflections on the increasing complexity and um dynamics of this new order are still relevant today. You mentioned sort of with the rev- the French revolutionaries and, and the secularists, etc. How did economics play a role in all of that? What was he responding to? What were the what were the debates of his day in in reference to economics? Yeah, I mean specifically with economics, the two main ideologies that are at play an example of his his treatment of that is in a a piece in this volume on business and economics called the social question and the Christian religion. And that dates to November of 1891. And the two main ideologies that he's engaging with there are a kind of materialistic socialism, you could say. So Marxist Marxism would be a variety of this kind of materialistic collectivist socialist kind of ideology. And then on the other hand, a radical liberal individualism, which he would identify with um, certainly utilitarians. In this text, he connects it with the tradition of Adam Smith. A caveat there, I'm not sure. In fact, I doubt. I'd be love to be proven wrong. I don't think Kuiper really read Smith himself, but he's dealing with the kind of school of classical uh, political economy that comes out of Smith. And so these are the two kind of ideologies, both of which Kuiper understands as being inherently materialistic in their outlook and in their anthropology. And so these are the two ideologies that are ruling the day in a sense or, or fighting in the public square for for headspace and for for supremacy. And Kuiper wants to bring holistic and authentic Christian and particularly reformed understanding of the human person in relationship to God and society to bear as a corrective to kind of these two kind of uh, interestingly complementary or at least uh, co-belligerent kind of ideologies. There's actually an intrinsic connection that Kuiper makes, a kind of logical connection between one and the other that he makes uh, in the context of this this treatise that I, that I'm that I'm talking about specifically. So that's kind of the point of departure, say for for the the broad uh, questions of political economy. Right. The more tangible tangible entry points for the anti-revolutionary movement to become a political organization, a political institution, the anti-revolutionary party are uh, questions of government policy with respect to religious institutions and the church, but particularly to Christian elementary or day schools, you would you could say. So Kuiper was arguing for parity of funding 
parity of respectability and dignity in the public legal treatment of different institutions, whether they were you know religious in orientation or not, and whether they were reformed or whether they were not. So this was the key kind of entry point that you know a kind of secular liberal establishment had been in place. Under the kind of French revolutionary logic that had worked itself out in the in the in the course of the 19th century in the Netherlands, and that Kuiper was fighting back against this and saying, "No, no, you know, against this kind of vague, ethical, ironical kind of um, worldview, you know, we've got a, a distinctive, reformed perspective, and that comes to articulation in our understanding of how we ought, what we ought to treat our teach our children and how we ought to teach them." And that we, you know, we deserve public standing just as much as any other kind of, you know, a pedagogical approach or something like that. So, sure, those are a couple of the, you know, both the kind of more theoretical, ideological context for which Kuiper was was arguing, and then as you know, one of the more particular questions of of actual policy that 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 was the real occasion. This the school struggle for Kuiper becoming increasingly engaged in politics. Sure. And that's super helpful in terms of just the context for which, you know, when somebody cracks open this particular volume, helping just fill out like what it is he's responding to and how it was especially interesting hearing you talk about that as I looked at sort of the content of this. And I know you and other editors probably put, you know, chose particular pieces to put in which volume. Sure. And in in terms of that, I was really struck by just the beginning of this is, you know, the reader is going to have to get through and not have to get through, but in terms of ordering, (laughs) you've structured this to be him working through essentially a commentary on particular Heidelberg catechism questions. Can you talk about that decision in terms of how you ordered this volume in particular? Yes. Thanks. That's a great question. So, and let me just preface my answer by saying that my guesstimate is that by the time these 12 volumes are out, we'll have somewhere, certainly upwards of 2 million words now in English in the series, and, and maybe closer to three. But as kind of robust as this series is, it still only kind of, in a way, scratches the surface of Kuiper's own writing. So there's a lot of decisions that had to be made about what to translate and whether we, you know, we, we would try to translate the entire thing unabridged wherever, you know, that was feasible. In some cases, there are abridgments. Um, but say, for example, that 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 lecture that I just just mentioned, the social question of the Christian religion, that is now unabridged with all of his extensive and copious notes. So you can learn a lot just by seeing what Kuiper was referring to in all of his footnotes, for example, that fleshes out a lot of those dynamics that I was just trying to describe in the previous answer. Right. But yeah, so it's it's it was a challenge to decide what to translate and where to put it. And, you know, there was a little bit of negotiation between especially this 11th volume on business and economics and the 12th volume on charity and justice about which, which uh, treatise went where, or which work went, went where or another. The other challenge with Kuiper was, you know, he wrote a lot about the topics, say, of business and economics, things that you could understand broadly within, you know, within those areas, but they were really scattered across the entirety of his corpus. I mean, that, that 1891 lecture is probably the single best place to go to get a sense of Kuiper's outlook on economics. Okay. And yet at the beginning, he laments that then in 1891, they don't have a reformed person who's an, a specialist, an expert in the field of political economy, you know? Okay. And so he's got to do the best he can <laughs> right. as a stand-in. So he's lamenting that 
you know, he doesn't have this kind of more technical disciplinary approach that you would bring to say economics as an economist, as opposed to say a theologian who is interested in social questions or economic questions. Right. So, you know, yeah, structuring this volume was a little bit of a challenge there. Um, and my volume, intro- I, I did contribute the volume introduction and the attempt there was to, pr- to, to try to lend some perspective and context to what we were trying to do in terms of the organization of this volume. So as you, as you said, the first three pieces are kind of the anchor pieces for the volume and they events in, in a kind of a constructive way. So this isn't Kuiper himself making this argument, but this is our kind of ordering that we've placed upon it, you know, this systematic structure that we've, we've placed uh, these pieces within a kind of a Kuiperian approach to the economic questions of the origin, the essence or nature, and then the goal of economic life, you could say. And so for each of those three topics, focusing on, you know, what's the origin of economic life, what's the essence or nature of economic life, and then what is economic life aimed at, or what does it tell us, we selected different treatments on different Lord's Days from within the Heidelberg Catechism to include. So the point of departure for the origin of our economic life is Kuiper's treatment of the petition within the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. For his treatment of the nature of economic life, which you can understand under the topic of, say, of stewardship, we treated his treatment of the commandment, do not steal. And then for the telos of economic life, we included his, his treatment of the catechism's question and answers on the Sabbath day. So that's the kind of big structural pieces. And then there's all kinds of occasional pieces that are drawn from speeches, political speeches he gave, treatises that he gave, lectures, articles within his, his newspapers that he edited. And those form, in, in basically historical order, the next big set of pieces within the volume. And then we conclude with another genre that Kuiper is well-known within some circles for, but not, not necessarily is more broadly known, um, a set of meditations. So one of Kuiper's spiritual practices was to get up and write meditations every morning, and he would collect these and publish them. And he, he did this, for example, while he was prime minister. And so a number of these meditations are, you know, take, taking a point of departure in a biblical text that has some kind of economic dimension to it or, or has some practical application. And in this, Kuiper kind of provides a, a precy of a, even a spirituality of business. And so that's what the concluding section is in this particular volume. You mentioned the essay, or sorry, the, well, I think it was a talk about the, the social question. Mm-hmm. Do you think in terms of maybe where there's going to be a, the largest cash out for, let's say, an entrepreneur in the church or someone with a small business or thinking about run, you know, operating a small business in the future, where, where have you found Kuiper to be really, really helpful in that regard? Yeah, I mean, I find him to be generally um, <laughs> really edifying to read. So it's a little bit difficult to kind of select out, you know, sure. Um, the better. I mean, there are there are different. Like some of these pieces are are much shorter. They may just be three or four pages because they're they're a short essay that he wrote as an introduction to something, or they're an extract from say a speech that he gave in Parliament, that kind of thing. Yeah, for for a Christian business person, I would recommend those those opening reflections from the Heidelberg Catechism, first of all, because the Heidelberg Catechism is such a great document and has so much to teach us. And then Kuiper commenting on the Heidelberg Catechism is likewise very valuable and, and evocative. So I would start there, you know, and, and for example, his treatment of 
the negative duties associated with the eighth commandment, do not steal, but then the positive responsibilities that we have as stewards right. of God's creation are just so rich and, and uh, powerful. That's one place I would start. Certainly the meditations, as I mentioned, I think there's a lot there that can help reorient somebody who's dealing with material wealth and economic realities on a day-to-day basis, as we all are to some extent, um, helping us reorder our priorities and make sure that we've got, you know, we're treating things in the, in the right order and have our loves in proper order and all that sort of thing. I think those meditations will be very helpful. And the last thing I would recommend, I guess, is, is we included um, against, this might be the exception in the whole series, we reprinted something that was in a different, another volume in the series. My, my approach as a general editor was like, you know, we're doing enough work to get these things out for the first time ever. In many cases, you could select ad nauseum things, say, from Pro Rega or Common Grace that are relevant to the church or they're relevant to Islam or they're relevant to education. But those th- things are, are, we're going to leave in those three volumes or those trilogies, and we're going to treat you know, things from across the rest of his work in these other anthologies. The exception is the appendix to this volume of business economics, and it's, it's because it's such a powerful chapter out of Common Grace, and we, read, call, we called it here Common Grace and Commerce, where Kuiper is really reflecting on the place of the human person in his or her conscience before God as a, as a place of responsibility, and then how that works out conscientiously in a person's life following Christ as a disciple of Christ. And so, in the, in the kind of cultural and structural dimensions of that faithfulness and that stewardship. And it's really powerfully captured in this chapter on common grace and commerce. And so, those would be the three things I would, I would sort of highlight as perhaps the most useful, depending on, on the audience or what you're, what you're looking to get out of the text. One of my favorite things, I think, just the little bit that I've been in and out of Abraham Kuyper's work for, you know, I was at a Bible college, so covering him there and in certain places and then off and on since is there's obviously the content of his work, which is, as we've talked about, is going to be wide and about all kinds of things as he's actively applying the biblical text to all spheres of life. But what I've, I think what I'm most grateful for and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this and, and if it's been the case for you. What I've been most edified by was is sort of the content is there and then sort of what's behind all of it seems to be a really sort of a glad assumption of responsibility for all of these areas. So like I, I could probably see as more and more we see the Bob Inc. and Kuiper dispositions or temperaments compared and contrasted. You could see, I, I have friends where I'm like, oh yeah, this is, I could see, you know, alliances or loyalties going one way or the other, just given mm-hmm. dispositions. But the sort of, uh, I love Kuiper's, essentially his, his assumption of glad responsibility in terms of skin in the game, I suppose. Yeah. And that is awesome where he may not be talking about it, but it, it is, he's assuming it though. What do you think about that? I, I mean, I think that's a great way of thinking about it, right? Like, it's not, I mean, it's for good reason that the doctrine of common grace is associated so closely with Kuiper. You know, he spent a lot of time writing and thinking about it. He thought that it was an underdeveloped theme in Reformed theology up to his day. And that, it, you know, in that sense, it was a lacuna that needed to be explicated and given its fuller treatment, especially because of the existential question of how is a Christian supposed to live 
in community in some sense uh, in a plur- pluralistic society, you know, with people that uh, are of different confessions and different dispositions than, than Christians are. So, um, it had this kind of existential need that was there. And, you know, the whole point of common grace in many ways is just to, to sit back and appreciate all of the good gifts that God has given us that we tend to take for granted and not to be, you know, to notice or to be thankful for. And so all the good that's in the world within the Christian sphere and without the Christian sphere is, is to be seen, you know, as coming from God, the giver of all good gifts. And so in that sense, I think it's entirely consistent with Kuiper's kind of basic framework to, to take this attitude of uh, this, this, this disposition of gratitude as the point of departure for all of the, the, Christ, the life of Christian discipleship. You know, I mean, the catechism itself, obviously, um, you know, it treats the law in the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is all about living a life of gratitude, right? So, it's a guide for how to be, how to be, how to show gratitude for what God has given you, you know, in the context, say, of, of personal property or private property. How do we show gratitude for God for all of the good gifts he's given us, whether they're material or spiritual and so on? So, in that Absolutely. sense, I, do, I think you're right. It's, it, you know, he's inspiring in that sense because it's, it help it, it, it helps us reorder our posture towards the world in this sense that we understand, yes, the depth and gravity of sin and the antithesis to use a Kuyperian term, the, re- the ongoing reality and struggle against God's will and his kingdom that is, that is in this world, but the prior fundamental, radically fundamental reality of God's prior action in grace, and especially understood as the, the preserving grace of keeping the world order in place and ongoing. It does seem to be the fundamental principle of the generalist is gratitude. Yeah. Sort of that, that what is the, what is the motor of someone who is interested in things beyond just a natural, their natural scope? Well, and a corollary of that for Kuiper is his, his wonder, you know, at, at, at the mystery of all the things that, so, you know, important dynamic in Kuiper's understanding is that God has, has basically embedded in all of creation, all of this latent possibility. And part of what human beings are here to do is to, you know, it's, you could call it the cultural mandate or the cultural blessing or whatever you want to call it, but to develop the created order as a, as a you know, as a work of faithfulness, as a work of thanksgiving uh, to God's glory. And so, you know, even in the context of a, fall, of, of a fallen world, there is still work to be done to discover all of the mysteries that God has has hidden for us in some sense to discover in creation. And so there's a real kind of a curiosity there for Kuiper and a kind of a posture of wonder at all of these amazing things that that God has already revealed to us, certainly fundamentally in special revelation, but also in the context of, you know, discovering things about the way the world works. And so this permeates his his posture towards the world. So for folks that want to get to more familiar with maybe the breadth of his works. This this series is really, really ideal. Abraham Kuyper's Collected Works in Public Theology. I'm curious, do you have in mind, you mentioned earlier that that there are biographies now in English for both Bob Inc. and Kuyper. Is there one on Kuyper that, that you're particularly, that you would recommend? Yeah, the, the best one is definitely by, by James Bratt. James Bratt, okay. Yep. Okay. And it's called... Uh, Abraham Kuyper, 
My fifth subtitle's got Christian Democrat in it. Sorry. Sorry. Okay, no, it's fine. I forgot the exact <laughs> subtitle of your of your fine biography, but that's definitely the one I would the first one I would recommend. There's a nice pictorial biography that Urban's also put out that's just called Abraham Kuyper Pictorial Biography. And okay. that one is is you know less detailed certainly than Bratt's kind of magisterial study. Um, but it's it's nice in the sense that it gives a kind of coherent picture. It literally pictures of Kuiper in his context and some of his uh contemporaries and so on. And the other one I would recommend is less of a kind of a traditional biography, but uh, Richard Mao has a has a, a short accessible work called Abraham Kuyper, a short and personal introduction. Okay. Okay. I would recommend that one as well. And those are all three in different ways, good secondary entree points into, into Kuyper's chronology and, and biography and his salience today, certainly in Mao's case. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Ballard, is there any place we can send folks to, to keep up with you and, and what you're, what you're putting out? Yeah, sure. I'm on Twitter. It's just the, at Jordan Baller, J-O-R-D-A-N-B-A-L-L-O-R. So I'm pretty, say pretty active on Twitter. Um, the series itself is at abrahamkuiper.com. So you can check out the, the development of what's already been done and, um, and that series going forward. If I could recommend just two other places yeah, to please. kind of get into Kuiper, if you're interested in, and, you know, some of these, these volumes are, um, are certainly affordable and we, you know, the, the publisher Lexham has done a great job in terms of designing them and making them, you know, aesthetically pleasing and accessible and, and uh, at a nice price point. And, you know, the great thing about the volumes is that they're in beautiful physical copies, but also available in, in Logos Bible software at an affordable price. They've also made available some extracts for free. So if you're on Logos, you can download a few works of Kuiper for free. One of those I'll recommend is, is called Wisdom and Wonder, Common Grace and Science and Art. And it's an extract out of the Common Grace series, focusing on Kuiper's thinking about the relationship between Common Grace and what you could call scholarship or how, you know, how people know things, science, and then also the, the realm of art and artistic expression and so on. That's a great little place to read Kuiper in his own words and get a sense of what his understanding of common grace is and how it pays off. And then I would also recommend his lectures on Calvinism, which are not included in the series because they they're one of the main things that have you know remained in print for the last hundred years, but they still represent a key foundational way of of getting at what the scope and breadth and depth of Kuiper's worldview and his understanding of it. Awesome, Dr. Ballard. Thank you so much for for giving us your time. And we'd love to have you back on anytime. Thanks so much, Jake. I appreciate it. Awesome. Cheers. Cheers.